In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 39 of the Pawn Order Podcast. I'm your host, Camille Lapchuk, joined with my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter. Hey, Camille. There's, it feels like there's something odd going on. It feels like, like we were supposed to do this a week ago. Yeah, we, uh, we actually pushed this episode back by a week because things have been really, really busy. Really, really busy. Among other things, we've actually moved the Animal Justice back Office back to Toronto, so that's been obviously a huge deal, and there's just been ton go- tons going on with conferences and animal rights marches and so on. I, I, want it, I want it on the record, Camille, that this delay was 100% attributable to my co-host, Camille Labchuk. And I say that because in the fan mail that we get regularly, they are always blaming me, Camille, when I miss an episode. It's like, Sankoff, you're lazy. I was ready to go last week. Camille had moving office. To be honest, she was gallivanting. It was the usual Camille hitting up the vegan restaurants, gallivanting across Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, you're welcome to characterize it that way. But rest, rest assured, everyone, we were very, very hard at work. But, but I, I want it for the record, Camille. The rest of the gallivanting was a complete lie. But for the record, you got to take ownership for this one. I've taken ownership when I've been away. So you got to take ownership. Yeah, so we, we took that week off and pushed this episode back, and now we are back. And there's been lots going on. I was, I mean, it feels like so long ago now, but just everyone knows, I, I think I told you in the last episode, I was going to St. John's for a wedding, actually a really, really fun wedding, but managed to get some Newfoundland vegan food in there. Shout out to my friends who run the great place called Green Kitchen, Wow! which if you're in St. John's, totally check it out. And Peter, you know what was really cool is I saw some puffins. Puffins. Wow. Yeah. I went Love the puffins. Saw a bunch of puffins. And yeah, they're really cute. They just have these like big red or orange beaks. And yeah. How was, was uh, how was the weather in Newfoundland? Um, shockingly, it was very, very hot. Hmm. Everyone in Newfoundland is like, wow, this never happens. Up until a week ago, it was 15 degrees. So that was nice. What I'm refining, nice what, what I'm, that's the weather I'm referring to as the Edmonton in quotation marks summer. This is like the worst summer ever. Although today is lovely and tomorrow is lovely and then our summer apparently is over. That it was a wow. two, it was a two-day summer. It's been uh, the weather wow. in Edmonton uh, it would be charitable to characterize it as brutal. It has been uh, not a very good summer. Wow, so like in the teens kind of thing? Uh, yeah, it's been pretty, I wish, I I mean, seriously, it was down to like six degrees the other night. It's like been highs of like 13 and and lows of six. And it's just been, I mean, there's been a lot of rain, which is good for like the grass and the gardens and the crops in the area, but it's just, it it hasn't, we haven't had a summer. It's been, my wife and I are pretty bitter. I mean, we were away for a month in, in, in Europe, as you know, and it rained here every day, just about that month. So any Edmontonian listening to this is nodding their head 
bitterly right now. Because of course, for us, keep in mind, like winter is only weeks away. <laughs> That's just so crazy. It's like we're weeks away from winter. Yeah. We've had no summer. It's, it's brutal. That's a terrible thought. Mm. Well, you know what? We got a hailstorm here on Saturday in Toronto. And it was actually interesting because it coincided with this massive march that I was taking part in. It was the official animal rights march that uh, happened on Saturday, the 17th, I guess it was, in Toronto. Just a massive, like probably mm. a thousand people, amazing march. And it was going really well. It was like a good temperature for a march, not too hot, not too cold. And then we got about halfway through and the skies just opened up and it was like... It's like somebody up there was crying for the animals. Well, I guess. But then hail started coming you down just, too. You just stole my joke. It was like those are God's tears, right, Camille? Just uh, oh, in support yeah. of the animals. Yeah. Or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so at least you're not getting a hailstorm. But I did um I did have a great time all weekend at the Animal Liberation Toronto Conference. Hmm, I which, saw that. Peter, it was massive. There were like four hundred people enrolled in it. Just a huge, huge, huge event. It was hosted at U of T by um, Animal Liberation TO. And kudos to the organizers because they did a great job. But they had a lot of stuff about social movements building and disruptions. And, you know, the crowd that run it is, is it's not really an animal law crowd. They're much, much more into direct action and disruptions. Um, right. So it was cool to hear that perspective. But I did do a legal training. So a Know Your Rights session for activists. And uh, I think it went really well. I always think it's just so important for activists to understand what the laws are around different offenses, what the police can do and what the police can't do, because they often try to push the boundaries. So that was fun. <laughs> that must have been a fun session. What the police can and can't do, because what I found is what you need to be uh, uh, giving that instructional lesson, Camille, to the police, because let's just say they will they will. Uh, I. I if I see one more obstruction of justice charge laid, and let me just say uh, what's interesting, I shouldn't say that. I think I brought this up a couple of mo a weeks ago. There's apparently a new policy about obstruction of justice complaints, and, and it apparently got so bad in Edmonton that they they finally had to issue a uh, a, a message, like you know, a directive that you can't uh, you can't charge someone with obstruction of justice unless they are in the process of actually committing a criminal offense. So it's like what. They they used to do was they would charge somebody with some ticket for example right like a speeding ticket or like you're on your bike and you're not following the bike regulations you don't have a helmet or something and then the person yeah. would refuse to give them id and then they charge them with obstruction of justice so in the activist context that would be like somebody would be protesting in a way that was contrary to a municipal bylaw right and then they wouldn't give them ID or they would, you know, ask the police, they would, you know, question what the police were doing. And then they get charged with obstruction of justice. And that's essentially what they're doing is they're taking a municipal offense and they're leveraging it up to a criminal offense. And, and finally, you know, I'd like to see if it's being I, I obviously don't have any evidence, but I have heard that the policy exists to try and cut down on those sorts of bullshit charges. Excuse my language. Oh, I hope so, because I'm pretty sure that about a third of the charges that clog up our court system are administration of justice offenses. And for anyone listening, that means things like um, failing to appear for a court date, uh, you know, not doing things when you're supposed to, obstructing police, uh, which which are, you said it, Peter, I'm going to repeat the word bullshit. <laughs> but police regularly abuse their authority. And oftentimes, I think, as you pointed out, don't know what the th their authority actually is. And they think that they have the right to seize people's cell phones and delete videos from them and all kinds of things like that. Well, I mean, so, uh, like, again, I don't want to it's it's always it's always 
I just want to say, and I'm sure you feel the same way, it's always tricky to paint with a broad brush here because the police, it's like saying, like talking about the police in generalities, it's like talking about lawyers or any other profession. It's like there are really good ones, and I've seen them. Like they're really good. They're restrained. They understand the ability to protest. You know what I'm saying? And they don't They don't get involved. And then you get hotheads who like if you question their authority, they start to just react to you, and they're like ready to start charging. It's like they, oh, know, of course. they know it's very hard for complaints against them in those sorts of situations to come back against them. Uh, so as a result, like, you know, they also know it's much more hassle for you if you get nailed on those sorts of things or charged. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally it is. So, yeah, anyway, I love doing those trainings. I'll definitely be doing another one in Toronto before too long and hopefully in other places too. So, so stay tuned. So, Peter... Uh-oh. I think that you've got some news that you might want to share with people. A little bright spot in your life amongst all this cold and rain in Edmonton. Well, it's a bright spot in my kids' lives. As I posted, <laughs> as I posted, I think the posting I did on Facebook, I didn't even announce what had happened. I just had a picture of my daughter with uh, our new addition to the family. And the caption was, she finally won. So uh, for those of you who might know, my daughter has been on, my daughter is now 10. She has been on a six-year campaign to get a dog, like a six-year campaign. It's a shock and awe and harassment campaign. Essentially, <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I'm literally not kidding. My daughter could provoke herself into like, I wouldn't call it a tantrum because I don't think that's the right word. I don't think she, sometimes it was a tantrum when she was younger, but nowadays she could literally go from zero to 100 in terms of just going from a happy day to a complete crying fit about why won't we get her a dog? So this would go on for months and months. And finally, literally, I, I think I just gave in. I didn't really want a dog, uh, I have to say. I already have two children, which is like, you know, <laughs> I'm finally getting some freedom from my children. And now I have a dog. But my daughter finally uh, talked me into a dog. So, um, yes, we got a dog. Uh, his name is Chili. And um, the compromise involved in the dog, let me say, Camille, um, I am usually a big dog type person or at least a medium sized dog type person. I don't know what your feelings are in this matter. What are your feelings on this matter? Uh, my feelings are that I'm a cat person. <laughs> oh, God, I hate cat people. How are we doing this podcast together? Sorry, cat people. Oh, my God. But you're I just, only telling me now. That just, you, oh, my God. Just, we're going to get so much hate mail. How I just alienated <laughs> half our audience. I don't mean that. I used to be a cat person, and then I discovered dogs. <laughs> no, I, I like dogs too. I like dogs too. And I, I don't like, really have a preference I, I, on cats. On a serious note, I do like cats. I just I don't want to own one. And I'll tell you, I just don't want to own one because I won't declaw them. And I'm sorry. I, I apologize to all you out there. I like my furniture. And if you give me all this stuff about, oh, you just need to do XYZ and Q, I tried all those things with my cat and he just destroyed my furniture. And once you have one, of course I'm not gonna give it back or sell it or whatever, right? So it's like you're stuck. So I don't want a cat. I prefer to have a dog who poos all over my rugs, right? That's just fantastic. No, I'm right. just Chili is super cute. So the compromise was that we would get a dog, but because our lifestyle is complicated and uh, with my wife being from Europe and we travel a lot and all that, we decided for the first time in my life uh, to get a small dog, a really small dog, like we got a Chihuahua. Um, and I never thought I would like dogs like that. And to be honest, I'm still 
deciding, but I will say this. He's super cute, and all he wants to do is be cuddled. Like, that's it. Aww. You don't understand. He's like the ultimate cat, but he's like a cat. He, you can't, you can't, except you could take him for walks, right? I know you can take cats for walks technically, but I found when I was doing that, I was pulling the cat half the time because the cat is not a dog. You know, I don't know how many times I can say that. <laughs> we're really going to get hate mail. <laughs> Camille, as we're yeah. recording this episode, I can see our Patreon page numbers dropping. It's all the cat people say, I'm furious with Sankoff. Anyway, um, so... He's very cute. He's a very small dog. We decided to get a small dog because we travel a lot. And we were concerned about A, leaving the dog, and B, taking the dog. So we figured if we get a small dog, my one of my good friends has a small dog and travels regularly with him in the plane, right? And this dog, yeah. I can already see, so far we can take him anywhere. Like, just as a comparison, right? So we can take this dog just about anywhere. Restaurants are still a little tricky, right? Although my friend even does that when she has the incognito bag because the dog will stay in the bag. But like you can take him into any store you want. You just carry him and nobody cares, right? Like yeah, nobody cares. Yeah. But if you come in with your big dog on a leash, at some point you're going to get some objections. You know what I'm saying? Right. So you found the right dog for your lifestyle, someone who's easy to carry around, likes doing things, likes to cuddle. Yeah. I think good. so. Um, we have decided that Chili is the new mascot of Pawn Order. That was a unilateral decision, let me say. I haven't even consulted oh, with yeah, Camille. Oh, yeah, this is the first I've heard of it. <laughs> but we've decided Chili is the new mascot. I want to put Chili on our on our T-shirts, um, that our Pawn Order T-shirts that we also haven't ordered yet. But anyway, I'm... I'm, let's say I'm moderately excited to have a dog because he's very cute um, and my wife is doing most of the training so I don't have to. And to be frank, one of the things that's interesting, Camille, compared, like we had, we literally came down to two dogs. We, uh, by the way, I should say, for anyone who's wondering, um, we got this dog from a rescue facility. So Chili is a native of Texas who was on a kill list. He was going to be killed by a local uh, animal control shelter and he got brought up uh, through a rescue network up to Edmonton and we, we, we uh, purchased him because, or I call it a donation to support the works of the rescue shelter. Um, so we have him. But he was, it, it came down to Chili and this other dog who would have been awesome for playing ball and doing stuff that I like to do with dogs. But honestly, we just decided that the small dog uh, made more sense to our lifestyle. So that's uh, where it went. Well, congratulations. I can't wait to meet the little guy in the October, I guess, when I come visit you. Well, he's a, as I, he's a cuddle monkey. It's literally like I came home yesterday and I wasn't even feeling that great. And he just jumps on you. Like he just comes running to the door, jumps on you and then turns over just waiting for belly rubs. Like it's unbelievable. Aww. Essentially, this dog's reason for existence is to be rubbed and scratched. And he's really funny. So yesterday, see, I do like the dog, as you can tell. So it's like yesterday, I like he jumps into my arms and like I'm starting to scratch his belly. And then I stop for a second and he starts hitting me with his paws. He's like, more, more, more. So I start stroking his belly again. And then he's like, I stop. And then it, it becomes a game. And he's just, he can go on like that forever. He just wants to be cuddled. He has no other purpose in life. Well, it sounds like he's melting even your cold, dark heart, Peter. Mike, what passes for a heart in, in, in you know, this, this pit of jealous rage that is me, Camille. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have to put that one. <laughs> that is me All in right. a nutshell. Okay, let's move on. 
Okay, moving on. So, Wait, I got what else is new? Oh, what else is new, right? Because I have two other little what else is new things. First, I do want to mention that I went very unexpectedly, and I almost feel guilty to say this, Camille, given who our sponsor is, but I'm going to say it anyway, that I went shopping. I was unexpectedly, very unexpectedly, in something, Camille, we call a mall. I'm not in a mall very often anymore, um, but we were in a mall because I had to pick something up uh, from a store, and I'm literally walking through the store, and unbeknownst to me, because Camille knew about this but had never mentioned it, I see this sign for a vegan shoe store, right? Now, Camille, in the old days, if you wanted to go find a vegan shoe store and you didn't live in Calgary, where our sponsor is the Grinning Godar, you either had to go online or you really had to look hard. Is that fair to say? Like, you had to look hard for a vegan shoe store. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It was always the worst thing to try to do is buy vegan shoes. Well, unless, like, I bought them online for years, and I found that works out for me, but I will say this about buying online. Not that I don't want to totally support uh, our good friends at The Grinning Goat, which we're going to do soon, and I have bought shoes online many times, but I will say this. There are times, Camille, when I like to feel my foot in the shoe. Like, I want to feel how the size is, because even though they say it's my size, I've bought shoes, and they don't quite fit exactly as I would like them to fit, and I know I could return them and stuff, but I usually don't, and then I just end up not wearing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then luckily for you, there happens to be a new option. And the reason I didn't tell you about this, Peter, is because I assume that every vegan in Canada already knew. You I honestly didn't know. I was just, look, I, I, the reason I raised this story is not because of what it had to me. It's sort of a running theme, Camille, from, uh, you know, the story we had on McDonald's a couple of months ago. The truth of the matter is the more that we normalize this idea and this lifestyle, the less we run into these stupid objections about how hard it is to do and how, you know what I'm saying? And, and I think the fact that you have a vegan shoe store, and by the way, the vegan shoe store is called Call It Spring, and they're in your local mall, um, is pretty amazing. And I think that just even, you know, I don't want to get into, you know, some of the ethical issues with supporting certain types of vegan shoe stores. And I honestly have no idea how Call It Springs produces their shoes. But the fact that they are vegan and advertise themselves as such, to me, that's only a plus going forward. I don't, I, to, you know what I mean, in terms of what we're trying to do. Yeah, no, it's really positive. And, and for a long time, for, for years, actually, they've been selling like almost exclusively vegan shoes, like non-leather shoes, I should say. And I guess they got questions about whether the glue and some of the other products used in the manufacture of them were also vegan. And so they decided we're just going to make this jump and get rid of whatever components may have remained that weren't 100% vegan. Right. So so now they are, and I love that they're advertising uh, it. I, that, that to me is the important part. I mean, I actually like the shoes. I actually got a couple of pairs, and, and don't worry, I'm, I, I don't worry. I do lots of shopping, and I, I buy from the Grinning Goat regularly, so don't worry. I need lots of shoes in my business because I scuff them relentlessly. But, I mean, I bought a couple of shoes, and I'm quite happy with them. I think they, they have a really good selection, and, yeah, whatever. It was, it, was, it was just exciting to see the sign, so almost more exciting than the shoes. Yeah, yeah, very cool. And finally, and I, have, I have one more note, Camille. Um, this is, uh, <laughs> in the world of academic writing, uh, there is a long lead time. This is uh, 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 in the time it takes to finish an article and the time it takes for that article to be published. Um, I wrote an article last year. For any of you who are interested, it is on what I think, in my mind, 
is one of the most important animal law issues of the day, and that is the issue of how we regulate animals on farms, or more, how we fail to regulate the treatment of animals on farms. And I wrote a lengthy scholarly article, meaning uh, it's a little legalistic and technical, on the issue of farm animal welfare codes, and that has now been published. And even better than that, Camille, um, that article is part of an entire article, uh, an entire um, edition of the Journal of uh, Canadian Contemporary, I think it's called the Canadian Contemporary Law Journal, um, Contemporary and Comparative, I can't remember, it's CCCJL. Comparative and Contemporary yeah, Law. Comparative Canadian and Journal Contemporary. Comparative and Contemporary. Correct. And um, that is online. That's available online. So anybody who's interested in reading about a bunch of animal law issues from a legal perspective, um, it is available online and it just came out last week. So I'm very excited that it's available to the public. Yeah, well, 100% link to it. It's got tons of great pieces from a whole bunch of Canadian animal law props, uh, a couple of folks from the States too, about, oh my God, fish issues, the SAVE movement, um, quasi-personhood approach to uh, non-human animals, religious slaughter, your piece, whales and dolphins, and mm. the foreword is written by the Honorable Senator Murray Sinclair, Fantastic. who was the wonderful sponsor of the whale and dolphin bill in the Senate. And I do think uh, most of the authors of pieces in that journal are going to be at our, schol our scholarly conference in September. Yeah, I think uh, nearly all of them will be. Yeah, all but two, I think, are going to be speaking. So, very cool. Yep, we're really excited about that. So that's what's been going on, Camille. Lots, lots, lots as usual. And and of course, I should say, oh God, we're coming to the school year. I think the next time we record this podcast, I will be in the school year. So I I warn you, I may be depressed when that happens, Camille. Just a warning. All right, I'll be prepared. Okay. Well, if you want to alleviate Peter's depression a little bit, here's oh, yes. a reminder that you can support us on Patreon. We are now at $151 per month from our lovely listeners, thanks to our two new patrons, Haley and Amanda. We would love your help in helping us reach our $200 goal per month. And if you want to sign up, you can do so at patreon.com slash order. You can get all kinds of perks for doing so, like shoutouts on the podcast and uh, free swag and other things like that. So please take a look. Yeah, absolutely. As Camille is right, nothing gets me more excited and happy than new patrons. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And another reminder that if you love the podcast, you can leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast and boosts us in the rankings. So that's really good because it helps spread the word. And I'm just going to read a new review from someone named I Am Justine. She wrote, I absolutely love this podcast. Look forward to every episode. Makes me want to become an animal rights lawyer every time I listen. Yay! So glad there's a podcast like this for vegans and animal lovers to listen to and learn about what's going on in animal law in Canada. Thank you, Camille and Peter, for everything you do for animals. The world is a much better place for animals with both with you both in it. That oh, was really wow. touching. Camille. Thank you, Justine. That that charcoal lump that passes for a heart in my body just grew one size. Just from hearing oh. that article. <laughs> so so touching. So touching. <laughs> the joy. And let's not forget, of course, our friends at the Grinning Goat. Now let me tell you, if you are gonna buy shoes, don't listen to me. You want to buy them at the Grinning Goat because they have a much better selection of shoes anyway. Right, Camille? They have an amazing selection of shoes and they're all vegan and they're all fabulous. Now, you were saying, I, did you see the people from the Grinning Goat recently? 
Oh, I didn't uh, because I wasn't at Vegandale Festival in Toronto, but they were for the first time. So perhaps some of you saw them in person and checked out some of their wares firsthand. Uh, but I think they had a really good time because that event is always just packed with people. But well, uh, whether you saw them there or not, you can still buy their products online. So grinninggoat.ca, they ship across the country. And you can use our exclusive Pawn Order discount code, POSITIVE15, yes, for 15% off. I will be seeing the Grinning Goat folks very soon, but I'm going to leave that for our next episode because that is uh, something big is coming up in Edmonton in just a couple of weeks. But I will leave oh, that for okay. our next episode. All right. All right. Sounds good. Well, stay tuned. All right. Well, let's get into the news. Camille, if we take a week off, things start to pile up. Let me tell you, it has been very busy in the news. Before this episode started, Camille and I had to do like a mini cull just to like get down to the essential stories, right? That sort of take us through because there yeah. has been a lot going on. And um, this first story is literally hot off the presses. It, uh, it came out just today. And it is a story of a Nova Scotia animal cruelty case in which uh, a man uh, was convicted after uh, the, the after being confronted with evidence. Because, like, you read the story, by the way, Camille, it says, expert witness testified that the dog suffered psychologically. That's the headline. And I'm like, wow, that's that's pretty awesome. Essentially, he was he was convicted for causing psychological suffering but i have no idea how she testified since the guy pleaded guilty but anyway that's the way the cbc reports on stories yeah no i i believe it was likely that there was an export expert report presented mm -hmm, as part mm -hmm. of disclosure but what would be presented at trial and he decided to plead guilty based on the strength of that i, I think that's guess. right i think that's right uh, and, and let's talk a little bit about this story camille let me put it to you rather than just jump in myself um and say you know good story bad story medium story what, what's your view of this I, I think there's a lot of good in here, and there's also some questions I have, which uh, we might be able to find out more about at the conference, actually, because many of the people involved in this case are going to be at the conference. Actually, all of them. Right, right. So, uh, interestingly, the, the charge, it was a, a plea under the Animal Protection Act. So this right. man, Mr. DeCoste, he was viewed on video surveillance footage whipping a dog repeatedly with uh, a leash. Correct. So first thing to note is he was charged provincially, he wasn't charged under the criminal code. Well, we don't know and, that, Camille. That's one of the that's one of the questions we have, right? Well, you're right. I guess he, he was convicted provincially. Correct, correct. He was convicted, and the SPCA in this story has made that sound like a good thing. And of course, convictions are good things. Though we both have some questions, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we do. So, uh, I mean, what's groundbreaking about this case, obviously, is the fact that it was a conviction not for physical pain, but for psychological uh, suffering, essentially. So, I believe the Alberta, or sorry, the Nova Scotia Animal Protection Act says that you can't cause undue anxiety to an animal. And the export report apparently supported that this animal did suffer anxiety or psychological harm. So that's kind of cool. But we're also sort of pondering, was he charged criminally as well for causing the physical uh, discomfort or suffering? Because it seems to me that whipping would, would be a really solid case to make that out. Well, it's not just that. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be critical because it's one of those situations, again, where I just don't know. Um, and let me just say, for those of you who are wondering, like, what the hell we're talking about, it is not altogether uncommon for someone to be charged criminally 
and then reach a plea deal in which the criminal charges are essentially withdrawn in exchange for the lesser provincial offense. So that is possibly what happened. Um, that's a way of inducing plea deals, um, but I'm not sure that's what happened. And it may well have been, that has been a very common theme that we've talked about on this podcast before, that in some of the provinces, they prefer to charge under the provincial law. And I do not think that's a good thing, especially not like a case like this, where we're not talking about neglect or forgetting to do something um, and causing emotional anxiety, you know, by leaving the dog outside where I might say that proving the mental element of willful cruelty would be hard. In this case, we have very willful actions, don't we, Camille? Yeah, yeah, we do. I mean, the security footage shows pretty clearly that this man becomes uh, upset with the dog and then starts whipping her basically in the in the face. And um, she tries to get away from him. She shows all the signs of um, being afraid of him and, and, and showing pain as well. Right. And, and as a result, like to me, I have stated sort of over and over and over and over again that I do think that it's important um, if we're going to have some sort of definition between what is animal cruelty um, under the criminal law and what is animal distress under the provincial law, to me, one of the dividing lines is intention. Like, what is the person trying to do? And in this case, it seems very clear that the person was trying to inflict suffering. Like, you know what's interesting about this, Camille? And I have never seen this. This is like, would be like, this is an all time never seen. If somebody said to me, like that he was he he we couldn't prove suffering now i actually think you can prove suffering because i think the anxiety and the psychological suffering is suffering but let's just assume for the moment that the courts insisted on some kind of actual you know damage to the animal you know i would charge him with attempted animal cruelty like to me like this guy was whipping the animal in the face like, to me, he was at least reckless, which is all he needs to be. And I think, like, whether or not, I think too often everybody's like, oh, we can't show that the animal was injured. I'm like, no problem. Like, that's why we have attempts. It's like if you attempt to murder someone and you don't succeed, that's why you get charged with attempted murder. Why can't we have attempted animal cruelty? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think I've ever heard of an attempted charge for animal cruelty ever in Canadian law. Have you? No, I've never seen it. And it's like, to me, in a lot of those cases, like attempts are not easy to prove. But it seems to me that if you look at some of those cases where they haven't been able to prove suffering and the person's been acquitted, you don't need to charge someone with an attempt. An attempt is an included offense to the actual offense. And I, it seems to me if you can show there was the mental element to try and cause suffering. And I think when you have a case like this, I, again, imagine this was a case involving a human. <laughs> like, right? And like... You're, here's the example. Like you're just you're just whipping. Obviously, if you hit the human, you have an assault charge because humans are valued more highly than animals. But let's say you're missing. Like you would infer from their intent that they were trying to cause harm. Like we can do that. We're allowed to do that, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. There's not really any reason in the animal context why that wouldn't apply too. I don't think so. So it seems to me like I would like to see again, it's, it, it, this, is, this is not a bad example. Obviously, we're pleased that a conviction was imposed and, 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 and kudos to the SPCA in, 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 in Nova Scotia for obviously going the extra mile and being willing to go after this case at all. But again, I just, we just raise questions because if we're ever going to improve the state of animal law in this country, it's going to be slowly and step by step. And I think one of those steps has to be to be more aggressive in the charging process and to to properly label what offending actually is. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm pretty encouraged by this because psychological suffering is it's one of those things that can often be worse than physical suffering for an animal because the trauma sort of, you can see how it could endure for much longer. And uh, for some animals, I mean, cows, for instance, there's evidence that psychological trauma is worse than physical suffering. So yeah, this and is just, cool holding yeah, as a plea so that we don't yeah, have a exactly. reported decision on it. But um, I'm sure that will come at some point. And, that's, what, um, that's what I just wanted to say, Camille, is that, uh, that the only downside of a plea is that you don't get the reported decision. So the precedential, yes. value, the precedential value of the decision is virtually nil. Um, th- yeah, it, it, yeah. It's not like there's a judicial finding and a determination that this is the law. There's sort of an acceptance because they can't accept a plea if the facts don't bear of an offense. But correct, still, it's not and quite it looks as, like uh, it looks like it looks like it was a joint submission on the sentence too. So you don't even get the sentence precedent, right? Because he was punished. For those of you wondering, um, essentially with a fine of a thousand dollars and an animal prohibition for three years. So I mean. It's on the lighter side anyway. And let me just say, as a defense lawyer, it should be. A plea of guilty is a good thing. Um, and that's, that's why people plead guilty. He still has it on his record, though not, Camille, on his criminal record, which is where we started. Nope. That's where I'd like to see it. Um, I'd like to see it on his criminal record rather than on some provincial registry. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Couldn't agree more, but... Uh, in the meantime, still a cool case, and yep. uh, the prosecutor, the investigator, and the expert are all going to be at our conference in October, so if you're coming, you'll have a chance perhaps to ask about it. Absolutely. Oh, I am coming, so I will ask about it. Fantastic. <laughs> Good. Okay. Uh, all right, next story is out of Manitoba. And, oh, it just breaks my heart, but it's the latest Canadian barn fire. This was quite a big one. Um 800 cows were killed in a barn fire in Steinbach, Manitoba. Apparently, this was the largest dairy farm in Manitoba. And uh, the reports in the news story of of neighbors just hearing the cows screaming is is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, Winnipeg Humane Society is calling for charges in this case. And the reason we're mentioning it mentioning it at all, it's you know, there's barn fires all the time, but what's significant about this case is the call for charges and I pointed this out on Twitter and I got a lot of surprise reaction. Never has a single barn, to my knowledge, or a farmer been charged in the event of a barn fire with any sort of offense in relation to that fire. So it just makes you wonder when these fires are happening pretty much every week in Canada and nobody seems to be agreeing that it's a serious legal problem that deserves any sort of prosecution. It's very troubling. So I hope that will change at some point, but glad to see the Winnipeg Humane Society calling this out. Well, hold on one second, Camille. Let me. Um, maybe there's just uh, we're not interpreting the regulations governing the, the storage of farm animals properly. Let me quickly leaf through those. Can I do that, Camille? Do we have the time? Oh. Oh yeah, we got lots oh, of time wait, for it. Sorry. It's going to oh. take no time at I, all. I, I couldn't find them. They weren't right in front of me. I wonder why that was. Oh wait, we don't have any. If you have a blank sheet of paper in front of you, that would be basically what the regulations say, which is nothing. Yeah, the uh, governments and industries have completely failed to do anything about the situation to address barn fires. And um, certainly there's no regulations that are 
requiring firms to do anything to improve sprinkler systems, evacuation plans, fire prevention measures. It's an interesting it's, part uh, of the story, bad. Camille. If you read through the story on the cbc.ca, the way it's written is pretty telling. Let me just go through the last four paragraphs. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. So Dairy Farmers of Manitoba says, well, regulations for barn standards are put into place by the fire commissioner, who will routinely provide updates and necessary changes to how new barns need to be constructed, says the Dairy Farmers of Manitoba. So this is all good. And then the last paragraph, Camille, did you catch it? The officer of the fire commissioner of Manitoba said they do not keep track of livestock losses. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's kind of laughable, but it's terrible. I'm laughing because I don't want to cry. It's ridiculous. So essentially... We have on one hand, the dairy farmers telling us, well, the fire commissioner does this. They take this very carefully. We are governed by the regulations of the fire commissioner. Yes, but the fire commissioner does not track livestock losses. Translation, they don't care. No, everyone just treats these fires like the cost of doing business. That's right. Like, let and me be clear. Can... Let's be clear, Camille. I, I don't want to be misunderstood. When I when I talk about the dairy farmers or the office of fire commissioner, nobody wants a fire. Like that's there's no doubt in my mind about that. Correct? No, they like, don't want fires. No, 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 nobody like, wants fires. Fires are you, bad. But you could be forgiven for wondering based on their actions, which is to essentially do nothing and just wait for fires to come along if they're going to come along. Well, well, my bigger concern, or I guess my biggest concern when I think about it is like, it's not the way I would characterize it is they don't want fires, but they accept that if fires happen, they're not going to put in the measures to actually save the animals. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they're not going to put in the types of fire prevention measures because of the costs that will protect the animals in a real way. Is that a fair description of what's going on? No, I think that's right. They're happy just to collect their insurance money if a fire does happen and, and rebuild because I, I guess they judge the risk of a fire happening as, as um, less important than putting money into preventing one in the first place because they know they can recoup that in insurance. <sighs> Sad days, Camille. Oh, no, it's not another repeat story that has come up before. Camille, I think you have a few words to say about Canada Goose, don't you? Uh, I do. So there was an interesting piece in the New York Post the other week. So Canada Goose... New York Post claims that it, has, it had uh, pulled some claims about its treatment of animals amidst a probe by the Federal Trade Commission in the States over false advertising. So this issue and our involvement in Canada Goose false advertising goes back uh, quite some time, about 2015. But we filed a complaint with the Competition Bureau in Canada because they used all kinds of flowery language on their website to try to convince consumers that they treated animals well, and, and they really tried hard to disguise the reality of, of the suffering that coyotes endure in like old traps and that geese endure while they're being uh, raised and killed for their feathers. So apparently, they're saying that Canada Goose has changed some of the language on their website. Well, the reason I bring this story up is because this actually isn't really news to me. They changed some of that language after we filed our complaint in 2015. And they've continually kind of been trying to improve it since then and make it sound still uh, like they care about animals and don't want to abuse them and treat them well and treat them ethically. But at the same time, uh, trying to walk on the side of the line where they're not actively misleading consumers. And hmm. I still think they are. If you look hmm. at their website, it still talks about ethical and humane use of animals. So the reason I bring this stuff, story up is because I don't think that much has changed at all. And I think they're still misleading consumers. Wow. It's hard to believe, Camille. Hard to believe.
All right, Peter. Well, I guess that's it for the news. And now on to our main topic. We're going to be talking about a brand new dangerous dog case out of the BC Court of Appeal, uh, the case of Santix, and it involves a, a destruction order for a dog named Punky. So listeners, you'll remember that a few episodes ago, Rebecca Breder, a Vancouver lawyer, was on with me and discussed this case a little bit and some of her involvement in it. So if you want the background, you can go to that. And I was going to say, Camille, as well, uh, two little things, two quick notes before we get in. I'm going to be referring to the judgment. So we've never done this before, but this might be, if you want, an opportune time just to pause the podcast as you're listening. And you can go grab the decision yourself and follow along. It's it's available online and we can put a link to it in the show notes. But for those of you who just want to do a quick Google search, just search for Santa versus Vancouver City, the citation, which is the judicial um, way they refer to the decision, is 2019 BCCA 294. So you should be able to find it pretty easily on Google just by putting in the name and the citation. Yeah, yeah. So go check it out. There's a link to it as well in in the show notes. And we should also do a shout out to uh, our good friend of the podcast, Rebecca Bretter. We're going to be talking about this case, but we should also uh, congratulate Rebecca on being named one of the country's most influential lawyers in a recent uh, poll conducted by Canada Canadian Lawyer. Correct, Camille? Yeah, Canadian Lawyer Magazine. Way to go, Rebecca. Okay. Um, everybody got the judgment? Fantastic. I'll assume that's a yes. So we're going to talk about uh, this judgment. Camille, do you want to sum it up first or do you want me to do that? Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll take a crack at it. Um, I think you've read it in more detail than I have, Peter. So if I get anything wrong, please jump in and correct me. But this case started a number of years ago. It involves a dog named Punky. He's an Australian cattle dog. And his owner, Susan Santix, uh, he was out with her one day at a park and he apparently attacked a stranger. So he he bit a woman. I don't believe that there were any punctures, but she's suffered significant bruising and pain in her wrist, I believe, for for quite some time. So this turned into a case where the city of Vancouver got involved. The um, complainant in the attack complained about it to the city, and they started proceedings to uh, bring an application to have Punky killed before the court. So if you want to do that in in Vancouver, BC, you have to go before a court and get an order that you can kill a dog. So she got that started. Though to what end is one of the questions in this case, but continue. Well, as always, as always, that's, it's a weird law, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, um, you know, that, that started, um, I believe the next step was that Ms. Santix was unhappy with that decision, uh, quite rightfully, because, of course, her beloved dog, Punky, would be uh, killed under that decision. So she appealed that to the B.C. Supreme Court. They, unfortunately, found that the uh, judge of the first instance had done what he was supposed to do or made a reasonable decision. And she then decided to appeal it to the B.C. Court of Appeal. So that's sort of the procedural history Obviously, I haven't got into any of the legals in, legal issues in this case yet, which there are several. So we can sort of start talking about that now. Yeah, there's lots of uh, little things about this case that are of interest um, to me. I mean, we could we could actually, and at some point I'd like to do this, Camille, talk about the laws governing dangerous dogs more broadly. Because the truth of the matter is, this what people don't understand is 
dangerous dog issues are literally a province by province and in some cases a municipality by municipality issue. And what I mean by dangerous dogs is that that's just a moniker. Like the way in which we deal with dogs who rush, uh, attack or bite, whether it's a person or an animal, is like, it's incredibly idiosyncratic. Is that a fair way to describe it across the country? Yeah, I like to use the word patchwork because it's very, very different in every jurisdiction. Uh, some provinces like Ontario have breed bans. Well, I think Ontario is currently the only one who does, but you can't have a pit bull or a pit bull-like dog in Ontario. And there's, there's lots of provisions there that affect some dogs differently than others. So pit bulls are diff treated differently from other dogs. Um, obviously, Quebec was in the news with, with some pit bull and dangerous dog legislation mm. recently, and, and same with Montreal. Uh, BC has its own legislation that essentially province-wide it sort of gives this legal framework that empowers municipalities to, to um, create something that's a little bit more specific to their own municipalities. Right. But it and, ends and, up being really confusing for oh people my God. to try to follow because there's the no Alberta, standard. The Alberta law is a disgrace. Like it's really like it's, I've made it one of my missions to do something about the Alberta law because the Alberta law is three freaking paragraphs long. It's tiny. I'm not even sure what the law is in Alberta, and frankly, neither are the judges. And that's not good, by the way. Uh, a legal vacuum just allows animal control officers to use a lot of arbitrary power. And that's what they do. And the irony, Camille, is if someone said to me, well, which province is good and which province is bad? It's a mixed bag because what's really interesting is, so Ontario's got the terrible breed ban, which I think is arbitrary and unfair and results in a lot of suffering for animals. but. Compared to the BC law we're about to look at, right, their actual, the way they, 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 they authorize destruction of dangerous dogs seems to me to be a lot more fair in Ontario than it is in BC. Right, because they explicitly say that there's steps short of destruction that can be taken, like a muzzle order or other interim measures to try to get the dog back under control and the system and, and behaving better if there is an issue. And there is, I, I think, I haven't looked at the Ontario statute recently. It's, it's, in, it's in paragraph 23, also... by the way, for anyone. It's in paragraph 23 of the judgment, so you can take a look at that. It's there. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, they do right. set they do set out that aspect. So so it allows it allows like it's really quite it's it's quite good comparably. I mean there's flaws in it, but comparably to the Vancouver order, it says if you if you find that the animal is effectively dangerous, the court can either destroy the dog or order that the owner of the dog take measures for more effective dog control. And neither of those is prioritized, right? Which is good. So essentially, more dogs will live, right, because of that potential. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really important. And, and, and the Ontario Act also gives some examples of what effective control would be. So that's helpful for judges, too. They're not just trying to make something up or pull it out of thin air. But <laughs> finding a dog to the owner's property, yeah, using a leash, exactly. using a muzzle, posting warning signs. Like, these are all very helpful forms of guidance. Uh, and it's, it's you know, funny. I think some other measures that have been accepted include additional training. It's, it's funny that you say pulling it out of the air, Camille, because like in Alberta, they literally pull it out of the air. The, the, the act tells them nothing. And the judges essentially make up the law. And let me just say, it's not just the judges. It, that means the animal control officers can make up the law, too. And while we're talking about pulling it out of the air, Camille... I honestly think this decision, I'm wary of being too critical of judges who have a very tough job to do, but my biggest critique about this case in Santix is, I actually think the judgment makes no sense at its core. And let me tell you, do you want me to tell you why, Camille? 
Yeah, well, let's get into the issues. Why don't you sort of explain the legislation a little bit and what the judges were having to deal with? Okay, I will. Thank you, Camille. The issue in the case is actually fairly straightforward, okay? In a really straightforward sense. The judge in this case followed an existing decision of the BC Supreme Court, which, don't be confused, <laughs> this, is, this is British Columbia, <laughs> folks. The BC Supreme Court is below the BC Court of Appeal, but above the provincial court. Huh? You're still with us? Okay, good. Got it. So the, 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 essentially the issue as I see it in the case, Camille, was pretty straightforward. The issue was, did the BC judge who ordered a conditional order, essentially, I'm not going to order the dog to be destroyed. Instead, I'm going to order the dog to live. Or did the dog, sorry, did the court have the power to do that? Because I don't believe the, the judge did it in this case. Is that correct? No, yeah. no, no, the judge didn't do that. But the argument was that instead of just ordering the destruction of the dog, the judge did have the authority to impose a conditional order, which is essentially like things that you could do that would improve the situation for the dog, short of destruction. Correct. And, and the question, the legal question in the case was effectively not should this dog get it, but the more legalistic question of does the judge have the power to do that? And, and That's right. And so this goes up to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal says, no, this, the, 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 um, the judges do not have that power. And the reason for that is because we live in a society where the statute gives the primary power. We, it's, it's, I, don't, I can't get into explaining to non-lawyers exactly how the law works, but essentially judges are constrained by statutes. Judges have a lot of flexibility when they are not constrained by statute. They can exercise something called the common law, but when they are confined by statute, they have to work within the confines of the statute. And the question in this case effectively was, are they confined by the statute? And the statute basically said the judge may make an order for the destruction of a dog, but it didn't. It was silent on whether the judge had any ability to do anything else. So the BC Court of Appeals essentially said that silence means no. Yeah, and can I now get to why I think this case makes no sense? Like it, it's just Go judges. It. Judges doing this. I, let me answer. Like, like first of all, let's be clear. The judgment is 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 bad for dogs. Okay, and the reason for that is, is because the less flexibility there is in making an order, the more likely the dog is going to be destroyed. So in terms of dogs in British Columbia, this decision is not good. But now I'm going to put my law professor hat on, Camille, and tell you why I take issue with the judgment that has nothing to do with whether or not it's good for dogs. Okay? You ready? Okay. I'm going to call it, I think the judges are doing something we in the legal community, it's a terrible cliche in the legal community, and let me stress, it has nothing to do, it's not a sexual cliche, before I, you, it's, uh -oh. called, it's, called, it's called sucking and blowing. The reason it's called okay. sucking and blowing, it's a straw metaphor. You can't suck and blow at the same time. That's the idea. You can do one or the other, but you can't do both. And in my opinion, in this judgment, they're sucking and blowing. Now let me tell you why. On one hand, they adopt a very strict interpretation of the law, correct? They sure. say, okay, well, there's no room to issue a conditional order, so clearly the legislature didn't want that, so therefore, we are not going to do that. Okay, that's the sucking part of the equation, okay? Then comes the blowing, because if, if you read the legislation, Camille, have you, have you looked, like, turn to, for those of you looking, at paragraphs 8, 9, and 10, and 11. They go through the paragraphs. If you read the legislation, Camille, there is no ability of the provincial court judge 
to actually determine whether the dog is dangerous. It just doesn't exist. If you read it carefully, it defines a dangerous dog. So they get to decide one of these things. So what is a dangerous dog? The dog has killed or seriously injured a person. Therefore, it is a dangerous dog. If it's killed or seriously injured a domestic animal, therefore it's a dangerous dog. And finally, if an animal control officer has grounds to believe it's likely to kill or seriously injure a dog, it is a dangerous dog. Now, my point with this, Camille, if you apply the same sort of strict interpretation, there is no room to even do a determination of whether the dog is dangerous beyond the definition. Are you following me so far? Yeah. So yeah, you're saying that the ex yeah, go ahead. explain to me how the court then comes around and get this, Camille, they read in the ability to determine whether the dog is dangerous. They literally go back. For those of you uh, want to follow this, they literally go back after doing this whole huffing and puffing about how we cannot read in standards for a conditional things. It would be contrary to the legislature, but we will read in a decision at paragraph 62 to allow the, the provincial court to retain the authority to dismiss a destruction application even where a dog meets the statutory definition of dangerous dog. How the hell did they do that, Camille? They literally, mm. they literally contradict their own approach. Now, let me just say for the record, the, the way they do that is ultimately better for dogs, and I'll come to that in a moment. So I'm not criticizing them for doing something that's good for dogs. But for God's sake, if you're going to go part way, why not go whole hog? Like, if, if you're already willing to ignore the statutory wording, which it seems to me that they are, they're clearly willing to ignore the statutory wording, why not read in conditional orders too? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess, <laughs> I guess the answer to that is that they didn't felt want to bad and wanted like outcome-based reasoning. Yeah, it's, it's ludicrous. <laughs> they didn't it, want to completely foreclose off this option to uh, do something different. Drives me crazy though, because like when you, I, I just read it as a law professor and I can't make any sense of the decision because I have no idea what they're doing. On one hand, they're saying, no, we cannot do this. We have to, you know, if parliament wanted, if the legislature wanted to include conditional orders, they would have read them in. But by the way, it seems pretty clear to me that the legislature, by the way, let's go back and throw some brickbats at the legislature. Like they could easily be our zero oh, yes. of the month. Like they're not, but they are our honorary zero. Can we do that, Camille? Can you check the, the bylaws of the Pawn Order podcast? Are we allowed to award honorary zeros? Sure. Okay, we can do whatever fantastic. We want. This isn't a democracy. Because this law, to be perfectly honest, anybody out there living in BC, this law is a piece of garbage. It is a terrible law that really doesn't understand what dogs are all about. I say this as a dog owner, Camille. Yeah, yeah, you are now a dog owner. No, it's a really, it's a really unfortunate law. It seems to give, I mean, the statute would seem to give all the authority to this bylaw officer to decide if a dog is a dangerous dog, which, you know, I think you're right, Peter, that that's what the statute says. It doesn't seem to be a judicial determination, but judges do want to seem to, to keep that. But, uh, you know, compared to all the other provinces and compared to what an ideal statute would look like, this is, this is far from that. So it, it's, it's just offensive at this point that it continues to exist. 
Yeah, and the court sanctions at paragraph 70, for those of you following along, this idea that animal control officers exercise considerable discretion in their approach to dogs that satisfy the statutory definition of dangerous dog. This includes entering into agreements with the owners for rehabilitation plans, neutering, adoption, and the like. The animal control officer's application for a destruction order is usually a matter of last resort after other less draconian measures have been attempted. Well, great. Fantastic, right? I'm happy. I hope every animal control officer is that wonderful that they really look after the dog's interest. Um, Camille, I don't know about your experience. My experience is it's not always as kumbaya as paragraph 70 makes it sound. Oh, I, I would be shocked if it ever was. I mean, I think anytime you're giving a lot of discretion to authorities, you're in a bad position, especially for the animals, because you can't really review a discretionary decision by someone who's a bylaw that's officer the problem. or law enforcement. There's no way that you as a dog owner or somebody who has a companion animal can get that into court and review that discretion. They just pretty much can do whatever they want. And that ends up being really bad when you talk about animals. Well, and can I throw another wrench into this? Why it's so problematic, Camille? Because so much depends on who the owner is. It's not animal focused, right? Half the time, these dangerous dog designations, let's be honest, Camille, why is the dog dangerous? Is it the dog's natural temperament? Or is it, oh, is it the a-hole yeah. owner who's taking care of the dog? And the problem that we end up with in this situation where it's the discretion of the dog and the discretion of the animal control officer, sure, if they come to my house in the nice white bread neighborhood with my nice, you know, privileged white face and we want to have a talk about whether Chili has been nipping. I mean, really, <laughs> Chili, Chili would have difficulty hurting a worm. But let's say Chili was bothering the neighborhood worms, you know, and causing distress to them. You know, we'd have a nice chat and we'd probably chat it over. And at the end of the dog, they'd probably let me go with a warning. But that is not the case in every situation. And that's all well and good if you're going to blame the owners, but you're not. Where's the censure for the owners? And by the way, where is the dangerous dog owner registry so that these people can no longer license? Like, where is all this stuff? But what we have instead is, no, 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 we'll just destroy the dog. Like, it's just, yeah, I, it's I really hate all this stuff. The dog just pays the price for for owners essentially who are who are not acting like they should and you know you, you brought up uh, the issues of race and class and, and poverty and, and issues like that i mean that's another huge problem when we talk about law enforcement in general and the more discretion you give to agents who are doing law enforcement functions the more people get targeted because of who they are and, and not because of uh, this you know who the dog is and what the dog has done absolutely it's just a terrible 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 system yeah and i just again I, i'm always wary when we do these podcasts i i don't want to be misunderstood the truth of the matter is as as much as i love and support the interests of dogs as someone who's been bitten personally a couple of times usually by my own dog um i I, I am, there are, unfortunately, some dogs that cannot be rehabilitated, Camille. They've just been, they've been, at least that's the evidence that I've seen. I, I do not believe every dog can be rehabilitated. I remember that, you know, even in situations with, uh, I remember from Michael Vick's dog fighting ring way, way back, they, they tried really hard. And there were a couple of dogs, they're just, they have to be destroyed just because they cannot be, they cannot be kept in any way that makes sense, right? Yeah, no, occasionally it happens. And, and we, we were involved in the case in, in Chatham, Ontario, where a bunch of dogs were seized from a fighting ring and um, the SPCA wanted to kill pretty much all of mm, them. Mm -hmm. uh, and we thought, well, that's probably wrong. Some of them must be savable. But uh, an expert who evaluated them uh, did conclude that all but one of them were, were okay. But, you know, there was one who just 
was always going to pose a, a huge risk to other animals and to humans and very difficult to deal with. Yeah. And, 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 and I guess, you know, to sort of wrap up this thought on, on this dangerous dog issue, it's like the problem that I think we have with it is that they jump too quickly. The, the common theme running through here, running through this legislation, running through this judicial decision is that they jump too quickly to the question of and the definition of dangerousness. Now, the one the one point I want to finish up on, Camille, because it ended up in a lively um, Twitter debate last week, is like, what does this mean for dogs going forward? And, and my feeling is that until they change the law in British Columbia, I, I get the feeling like this is pretty grim because although the judge gave the judges in this case gave individual judges the ability to still make decisions on dangerousness um, before ordering a destruction order, my feeling is the way in which they did that was pretty restricted. Like I, I'm not sure that the judges really want a full scale. Okay, what, what I mean by this is. I don't think they want judges to say, okay, well, you're going to put all these conditions in, right? So the dog is no longer dangerous. Like, I don't think the Court of Appeal wanted to skirt the ability to give conditional orders by just saying that you can build all those conditional orders into a decision as to whether or not the dog is dangerous. Does that make any sense, Camille, or am I blabbering? Yeah, no, I think you're right. The Court of Appeal was concerned that there was no statutory no statutory authority for those types of conditional orders. And there's, there still isn't, even if you sort of make that determination at the dangerousness stage. So I think what they're saying is like, judges can decide whether dogs are dangerous and, and maybe they want to say, no, they're not dangerous, but I don't think that really gives them the ability to do anything less than um, a destruction order. I think they can just be silent on an order. Well, and the reason I say that, Camille, is theoretically no dog is dangerous. If the test is just based on what you would do to prevent it from biting, well, you just say, okay, well, I'll keep it in a fenced cage 24 hours a day with a muzzle on. Well, then the dog's no longer dangerous. And I, I don't think, I don't think they have that ability to make that sort of decision. Like, I don't think that's really what they're doing. And I say that, by the way, because when I look at what the court decided in trying to determine whether a dog is dangerous. Um, if you look at the factors they set out in 67 and 68, they don't really talk about things that you can do to make a fa uh, an attack unlikely. They mention extenuating circumstances, like, but those extenuating circumstances really look at the nature of the attack, not the nature of the things you're gonna put into place to restrict the dog from attacking. Yeah, like they're saying, oh, well, if the dog was defending an owner or someone else from another dog attack and bit somebody or, you know, that might be extenuating and that could go to whether the dog is dangerous in the first place. But there's not really a discussion of whether you can look at the types of training that the dog has received since an attack, for instance. Yeah, it's 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 not good, Camille. Let's be honest. Um, I don't know. No, exactly. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Yeah, I don't know exactly what they're going to do. But um, at the end of the day, I, 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 all I do know is, the, from my experience with dangerous dog laws, you know, which was mostly in New Zealand, the less discretion you have to actually weigh the individual conduct of the dog, the worse it's going to be for dogs. That just seems to me to be something. So really, we need to get on our hobby horse, Camille, because what's the answer here? It seems to me you've got it. Call your MLA. <laughs> get busy. Get down there. We haven't had the hooves in a while. Can we get the hooves back, Camille? Because we're on our hobby yeah, yeah. horse of, of, you know, of, you know, going after the MLAs. <laughs> wow. Lots to say. I'm sure we'll come back to Dangerous Dogs another day, Camille. But for now, uh, I think that wraps it up.
Yeah, I think so. All right. And Peter, it's now time for everyone's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Allow me to start with the hero this week, Peter. I Please think- do, Camille. <laughs> I think you've got a terrible one this week. Go ahead. Oh, okay, listeners. This week, the hero is Peter. Yay, Peter. And I'll tell you why. So Peter and his summer student, Zach Wilson, uh, represented a couple of, of animal advocates in the Edmonton area. So Karen and Tove had been... Um, protesting and working on the issue of the Edmonton International Airport shipping horses to slaughter in Japan. And one of the things they did to expose the airport for allowing this to happen is they hung a banner over an overpass. So they went up on the overpass, they put the banner there, and some people saw it, and and that was that. They actually got charged with a provincial offense of stunting for doing this. And um, stunting, do you want to explain what that is, Peter? (laughs) Well, that's one (laughs) of the questions in the case. What is stunting? But stunting is essentially the art of uh, providing a a stunt that is likely to startle or distract uh, drivers on the motorway. Right, right. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that part of the theory of the case is that the, the banner flapped a little bit in the wind and that was highly distracting to everyone on the motorway. Correct, and it's it's a pretty big ticket. Like it's a serious ticket. It's like first of all, the cost is high, and it's not going to help your insurance when you have a stunting charge on your record. Yeah, so so definitely not great. But uh, thanks to Peter's and Zach's efforts, the prosecutors ended up withdrawing those charges against the two advocates, and so they're walking away without having to uh, to go to trial on this. So congratulations to you guys. This is really good. I love that um, Animal Justice was able to help out a little bit, too, by paying some of the costs associated with this case. It's obviously super important and a huge part of our mission just to protect the civil rights of animal advocates and make sure that they are free to speak up and to do other things to publicize animal protection concerns. But thank you so much, Peter. You are a true hero for the role you played in this case. Well, I won't accept that hero. I will say my uh, my summer student, Zach, did most of the work and uh, he did some great work. We had literally four different defenses. Like we were going to town on this one and I, I just think um, provincial prosecutors in traffic court don't usually get like books of authorities with like, you know, 15 different cases in them sent a month ahead of the trial. So I'd like to think that that had a bit of a role to play in their decision that prosecuting this ticket wasn't worth the effort it was going to take. It was literally going to be a full day trial on a, on a, on a stunting yeah. ticket. Well, because like I, I didn't think, I still don't think that what they did was stunting. Whether you like it or not, whether they're allowed to tie banners, whether you agree with the message or not, to me, it doesn't really matter. The issue is, does it qualify as stunting? And like the idea that a banner flapping on the side, as my, my student Zach pointed out, what does that mean for all the businesses that have like those wacky waving men that go like whipping in the wind as you're driving down the road? It seems to me like, how is that not stunting? Sure. Or electronic billboards that are constantly changing when you're, you're driving on the 401 in Ontario. Yeah. You're trying to attract attention. It makes no sense. So our view is that they're the, the, the officer's interpretation of, of this law was perverse. It didn't make any sense and it couldn't be squared up with legislation. We had other arguments too, but that was the, the main one. Well, I gotta say not the first time I've seen a law enforcement official try to shunt some sort of uh or, or shove some sort of charge in a situation that they just don't like even if it may may or may not be appropriate hard to believe and now of course for every hero there's a zero camille oh my god is it the federal government again 
How can it be, Camille? How can it be? We're, we're going to have to put a governmental ban on, on, on zeros. Just like give them the zero. It's sort of like a Hall of Fame lifetime zero because this one, it's the way they're spending their money, Camille. Yeah. And so there's two things and they're both subsidies for the cruel agriculture industry. So the first one is a subsidy from the feds to promote the foie gras industry. Unbelievable. In That's the one that blows Truly. me away. Unbelievable. They're giving $123,000. Wow. To an animal science research center to study the, quote, optimal feed intake for ducks. Great. And the claim is that the research is designed to improve public trust in foie gras. Ah. Canadians mostly don't consume because it's really, really cruel. It's so cruel that the Israeli Supreme Court said it was illegal and violated cruelty laws. And I believe it's been banned in California. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, wow. it's utterly offensive. Most people don't eat this. It's incredibly cruel. Uh, public trust is not something that the government should be concerned with. Like, if an industry is making a product that's so cruel that most people don't want to eat it, it's not our government's job to try to foist it on people and to play PR uh, representative for this cruel industry. It's disgusting to me. Hear, hear, Camille. Hear, hear. Yeah. And the second one, I mean, the second one, the amount is, is much uh, more serious. So dairy, the dairy industry is getting a $1.75 billion over eight years to compensate for losses sustained in recent trade deals. So that's $345 million per year, approximately. And that, that's the amount they'll get next year. I did a little math on this. It's an average of over $31,000 per farmer, assuming a farm of about 80 cows. But Peter, wow. let's talk about that. That farm in Manitoba that burned down, that the 800 cows died in that fire. So they have, I think, closer to 1,000 cows in total. And if you do the math on that, they're getting about $400,000 per year. Isn't that disgusting? 400K and you can't even keep the barn from burning down? Like, it, it just blows my mind that taxpayers' dollars are being spent on this. Wow. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it is it is zero. all good stuff. Good news. Wow, that was a little bit depressing, Camille. We need to put in some more good news stories next year. Yeah, maybe we should end on the hero next time. <laughs> <laughs> end on the hero and talk some more about my dog, Chili. We'll come home soon, Chili. I'll be, you know, rubbing Aww. your belly and scratching your face before you know it. Well, okay. I hope you better post some Twitter photos of Chili so that we can all see what he looks like. <laughs> will do, will do. All right, Camille, that wraps up another edition of Pawn Order. Thanks so much to everybody for listening. Don't forget to visit our sponsor, The Grinning Goat, uh, and use the special discount code POF15 to get 15% off on your next purchase. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pawn Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order. Pawn Order.